You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. What does Sputnik have to do with student loans? How did a set of trembling hands end the Soviet Union? How did inflation kill moon bases? And how did a former president decide to run for a second non-consecutive term? These are among the topics we deal with on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics podcast. We tell stories of history that relate to today's news events. Give a listen. My History Can Beat Up Your Politics wherever you get podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. This week, episode 295, Burning New London. We last left General Benedict Arnold in Virginia, where his raid on Richmond encouraged General Henry Clinton to send reinforcements to the state. It also encouraged General Charles Cornwallis to move up from the south to join the fighting in Virginia. As a British general, Arnold had proven that Virginia was relatively weak, but he didn't remain there very long. Many other British officers still did not trust Arnold. His fight with the Navy over a share of the booty in Virginia did nothing but add to his reputation as a greedy officer who put personal profit above duty. He left Virginia after Cornwallis arrived. He claimed he was sick, but by most accounts he did not seem to suffer from anything serious other than a little gout. By June of 1781, he was back in New York City with relatively nothing to do. Arnold may have had personal reasons for returning to New York. He had left behind his wife Peggy, who was pregnant with their second child. On August 29th, the Arnolds welcomed their son, James Robertson Arnold, named after Major General James Robertson, the royal governor of New York. Robertson was one of the few officers to befriend Arnold shortly after his arrival behind British lines. Arnold was also still trying to obtain money. In November of 1780, he managed to obtain a British ensign's commission for his son, Benedict Arnold VI, who was 13 at the time. After his return to New York in 1781, he granted commissions to his two sons, Richard, age 12, and Henry, age 9, as lieutenants in his own regiment. Now, he did this despite the fact that the three boys were still living with his sister, Hannah, in Connecticut, behind enemy lines. By granting them commissions, the three boys would receive pay as officers, and that pay would be collected by their father. Other British officers, even those willing to overlook his years fighting with the enemy and then changing sides, did not trust Arnold because his efforts to line his pockets simply didn't sit well with them. One British officer in New York wrote to a friend that Arnold has, quote, hurt himself by discovering too much fondness for cash. If he has attached to the latter, as is represented, he is no loss to the cause he has deserted and eventually can be no acquisition to us. His wife Peggy, however, did seem to fit in quite well with British society in New York. Not that she wasn't concerned about money either. At one point, she learned that Major Andre had sent 200 pounds sterling to the Arnolds at West Point to help them flee to New York City. When that plot fell apart, the money never arrived before they had to flee. So when Peggy got to New York, she tracked down the British agent who was supposed to have delivered the money and demand he pay it to her. When Peggy first arrived in New York, 
Other officers' wives gave her the cold shoulder. She was the wife of a rebel trader, and she was a colonist. They didn't think very much of her. But over time, Peggy's good manners and charm won most of them over. One woman noted that at a British officer's ball, Peggy, quote, appeared as a star of the first magnitude and had every attention paid to her as if she had been Lady Clinton. But Benedict Arnold still struggled to gain acceptance. His efforts to enrich himself, of course, did nothing to endear him to the British commander, General Henry Clinton, but also the general still felt the loss of Major Andre and believed that Arnold's behavior contributed to the loss of that beloved officer. Arnold's American Legion had also proven a major disappointment. Arnold had promised that thousands of American soldiers would join him in his new Loyalist command. Instead, he enlisted only a few hundred men, almost all of whom were already Loyalists before Arnold switched sides. During his time in Virginia, much of his regiment deserted, meaning that he returned to New York with a legion of only 90 officers and men. Shortly after Arnold first joined the British, he also wrote Secretary of State Germain, advising the government on strategies to win the war, and since they differed from the strategies of General Clinton, they were inherently critical of General Clinton's strategies. Arnold also asked for a promotion to Major General. Clinton, of course, received word of Arnold's letters to London. Clinton and Arnold apparently had a conversation about this after Arnold returned from Virginia to New York in June. A short time later, Arnold wrote again to Lord Germain, this time being much more supportive of General Clinton's strategies. Instead of another command, though, Clinton assigned Arnold to various administrative duties, including coming up with a list of names of American sympathizers in Quebec. General Clinton was still hoping for substantial reinforcements from Europe. In early August of 1781, he did receive 3,000 Hessians. A few weeks later, a fleet from the West Indies brought three regiments of British regulars. Now, that was certainly a help, but not nearly enough to go on offensive operations. Now, Arnold still wanted to lead a British army to capture West Point. Clinton refused to consider it. Even after Clinton received word that a combined army of Washington's Continentals and the French army from Rhode Island was marching south, he refused to take any offensive actions against the American defenses around New York City. Sir Henry, however, was willing to consider a raid on civilian towns. Arnold suggested a series of raids along the New England coast. Although Clinton was not ready to embark on an entire campaign of raids, he would consider allowing one raid. Connecticut had proven to be a thorn in the British side ever since they had captured New York. Patriot raids from Connecticut against Long Island kept the British from securing the distant parts of that island. Connecticut harbors also supported fleets of privateers that harassed British shipping. On September 2, 1781, Clinton gave orders for Arnold to raid the American port at New London, Connecticut. New London was only a few miles from Arnold's boyhood home. He would be attacking his former friends and neighbors. I sometimes wonder if Clinton chose this target as a way of forcing Arnold to prove his loyalty to the British cause. Now, of course, Clinton had other reasons for such an attack. A privateer had captured a British transport ship called the Hannah in early August that was carrying very valuable cargo. It was one of hundreds of prize ships 
taken to New London over the course of the war. Another motive for the attack was that, with the enemy headed to Virginia with most of its forces, a raid to annoy the enemy posed little risk. The raiders would likely face resistance only from local militia. It was clear by this time that the enemy was not going to attack New York City, so sending soldiers out of the city for a raid would not create a worry about the defenses in New York. Almost as soon as Arnold received the orders, he heard rumors that Clinton might rescind them and keep Arnold in New York. Clinton seemed to second-guess himself quite often these days, and he regularly changed his views on what to do next. To avoid giving Clinton an opportunity to reconsider, Arnold had his forces aboard ship and was sailing for Connecticut before dawn on September 4th. As I said, Arnold's target was New London, Connecticut. It's a port on the eastern side of the coast, just north of the eastern tip of Long Island. The town sat along the Thames River, named after the Thames River in London. Connecticut's Thames River flowed out into the Long Island Sound. The area was used as a harbor by primarily privateer ships that prevented the passage of British supply ships in and out of New York. To access the town of New London, ships would have to sail into the mouths of the Thames River under the cannons of Fort Griswold. There were no continental troops in the area. The fort and other defenses were manned by militia, most of whom would have to leave their homes and get to their defenses once someone spotted the enemy. Arnold moved up Long Island Sound with a fleet of 32 ships carrying about 1,700 soldiers. He personally would lead about half the attacking force against the town of New London. By the night of September 5th, the fleet was at the mouth of the Thames River, but an unfavorable wind prevented them from entering. At dawn the following morning, the lookout at Fort Griswold spotted the enemy fleet and fired two cannon shots to alert the local militia of an imminent attack. Just after firing that second warning shot, the British fleet fired a third shot. Three shots indicated a prize ship entering the harbor. Arnold knew this and ordered that third shot fired in order to confuse the enemy. Militia, who might have dropped everything and rushed to the fort after a two-shot signal, would likely ignore the three-shot signal. This confusion would slow the militia from turning out. Arnold's division of about 900 men landed just south of New London, near the lighthouse. The general deployed four companies to attack the smaller Fort Trumbull by land. Fort Trumbull was set up with several large cannons to bombard any enemy ships trying to move up the Thames River. Its small garrison of 24 officers and men were not prepared to defend against a land attack. The fort commander, Captain Adam Shapley, ordered his men to fire a volley of grape shot against the attackers. The garrison then spiked their cannons and jumped into nearby rowboats to sail across the river to the larger Fort Griswold. Having taken Fort Trumbull, Arnold continued his march northward. He encountered another small redoubt at a place called Fort Nonsense. Again, the defenders opened fire, but then quickly retreated as the enemy advanced. Arnold's forces easily took possession of New London, although many of the ships that had been docked there that they had hoped to capture or destroy had time to sail upriver. Arnold set about burning all the buildings or supplies of any military value in the town. Many of the Loyalist soldiers with Arnold were also from Connecticut and very familiar with the town. 
According to Arnold, the men moved to the northern end of town first, setting fire to buildings while moving back toward the south. The goal was not to burn private property, but when one of the fires hit a hidden cache of gunpowder, the explosion set a larger area of the town on fire, which was assisted by the wind. This destroyed much of the town. The raiders also took as prisoners several citizens of New London who were known to favor the Patriot cause. In all, later reports indicated that 65 homes were burned, along with 31 stores and warehouses and 20 barns. The Episcopal Church, the courthouse, jail, market, and customs house were all put to the torch, as were the wharves and any ships that had failed to escape. Arnold reported that six of his own soldiers had been killed and another six wounded, while he inflicted about the same number of casualties on the enemy. While Arnold was destroying the town of New London, the other half of his raiding party landed on the eastern shore of the Thames with the task of taking Fort Griswold. British Lieutenant Colonel Edmund Ear led a force of about 800 regulars, loyalists, and Hessian Jaegers against the fort and he brought with him several artillery pieces. Fort Griswold was a small star fort atop a hill that overlooked the Thames River. Like other forts, it was designed to deter enemy ships from moving upriver. Connecticut had built the fort in late 1775, after the outbreak of the war, and completed it in 1778. The fort did not have a large regular garrison, but was expected to be garrisoned by militia when the enemy approached. Because the British managed to confuse the cannon signal, only a portion of the militia arrived quickly. Connecticut Colonel William Ledyard arrived that morning and eventually accumulated about 160 men, including those who had evacuated Fort Trumbull. The British had to push their way toward the fort through swampy and heavily wooded terrain, which took them several hours. General Arnold had already taken New London before Colonel Eyre could reach the fort. From across the river, it appeared to Arnold that the fort was too well fortified. Also, one of the main reasons Arnold wanted to take the fort early was so that the British could use the fort's cannons to prevent American ships from escaping upriver unharmed. Since the ships had already escaped, and given the fort's defenses, Arnold sent a messenger to call off the attack on the fort. Before that messenger could arrive, Colonel Yair arrived on the outskirts of the fort with a portion of his men. The air sent forward Captain George Beckwith under a flag of truce. Colonel Ledyard came out of the fort to parley. The British officer demanded the fort surrender, but the American commander refused. Both parties returned to their lines. Yair believed that a direct assault on the fort would be successful, but would also be pretty costly. He sent a second demand for surrender, informing the defenders that if they refused to surrender, the garrison would be denied quarter once the British took the fort. Ledyard replied that he would resist to the last extremity. With that, the men once again returned to their lines and prepared for battle. Colonel Yair led a group of soldiers against the southwest bastion of the fort. At the same time, Major William Montgomery led a second assault against the eastern side of the fort. Both assaults met with fearful resistance from the garrison. The defenders unleashed grape shot from the fort's cannons. Although they took heavy casualties, the attackers reformed and continued to advance. 
Colonel Ayer and several of his officers were wounded. The second assault force under Montgomery came under similar fire, and Montgomery was killed in hand-to-hand combat with the enemy, allegedly by a militiaman using a 10-foot pike. The man who claimed to kill Montgomery was Jordan Freeman, a black free militiaman who had previously been a slave to Colonel Ledyard. Despite the resistance and the loss of their leader, Montgomery's division forced open the main gate and allowed both divisions to swarm into the fort. What happened next is a matter of controversy. According to American witnesses, the fort's defenders attempted to surrender. The attackers simply ignored the calls for quarter and continued to cut down the surrendering garrison. According to one account, Colonel Ledyard attempted to hand his sword to the enemy as that officer stabbed Ledyard. The British officer then took Ledyard's sword and used it to stab him again. Another soldier, then Lambeth Latham, then killed that British officer who had just killed Ledyard, and Latham himself was then killed by the enemy. British testimony after the fact claimed that they were not aware the Americans were trying to surrender. Another account excused British actions by noting that at one point the defenders lowered the fort's flag, which the British took to be a surrender, but then they raised it again and continued to fight. The British took this to be a false claim of surrender, and therefore they did not believe the enemy when they tried to surrender again once they were inside the fort. The British had taken heavy casualties during the storming of the fort. That, and the death or wounding of most of their officers, may have also accounted for the decision to continue killing the enemy that was trying to surrender. American witnesses said that the British just continued the slaughter and only stopped when they believed that their continued fire might blow up the fort's powder magazine. British reports after the battle reported a total of 48 British soldiers killed and another 145 wounded, almost all of whom were hurt in the assault on Fort Griswold. And that was roughly one-fourth of the division that assaulted the fort. When the British entered the fort, American survivors reported that defenders at that point had only lost about a half a dozen killed. After the attempted surrender and subsequent massacre, nearly the entire American garrison was dead or wounded. Arnold reported 85 of the enemy dead in the fort and another 60 wounded, most of them believed to be mortally wounded. After completing their day of destruction, both British divisions withdrew back to their boats before dark. The raiders took their wounded, their prisoners, and their booty back to their fleet and sailed back to New York City. Although the raid was a British success, both sides criticized Arnold. The Americans, of course, were outraged at the butchering of surrendering soldiers. They blamed Arnold as the commander, even though he was nowhere near the fort when it happened. Many of Arnold's own officers and men were critical of their commander for remaining in New London and leaving the much bloodier fight against Fort Griswold to others. They also said that Arnold greatly underreported British casualties, claiming it was more like four or five hundred men killed or wounded. They called it a Bunker Hill expedition, recalling the 1775 battle when the British took the hill but suffered intolerable losses in doing so. Whether the higher casualty rates are completely accurate is impossible to say, but the criticism does make clear that those serving under Arnold 
did not have much respect nor trust for their commander. After his return to New York City, Arnold requested leave to go to London. He wanted to confer with Secretary Germain and other officers on a strategy to win the war. Clinton refused to let Arnold go. Instead, he kept him in the city, once again behind a desk, pushing paper. He remained in New York for about three months when news of the events in Virginia finally arrived, along with General Cornwallis, who was on parole. Cornwallis and Arnold both boarded a ship together for London. Arnold's family sailed on a separate ship for London. The family took more comfortable quarters aboard a merchant ship, but General Arnold and Cornwallis had to sail on a military ship to reduce the chances that they might be captured by the enemy. As they sailed out of New York, it would be the last time that either Arnold or Cornwallis would set foot in the United States. Now next week, we're going to return to South Carolina for one of the last major battles in the South, the Battle of Utah Springs. This episode is supported by the food delivery service, Factor. It's spring now, and we all want to spend more time outdoors, enjoying life, not the kitchen. Factor ensures you have fresh, never-frozen, chef-crafted, dietitian approved meals that you can prepare in just two minutes. Each week, you get a menu of 35 meal options, as well as 60 add-ons, including breakfasts, on-the-go lunches, snacks, and beverages. You can customize your orders to get as much or as little as you want each week, and can pause or make changes to your orders at any time. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. It's the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, upscale options done easily. Now, they even have a special deal for fans of the American Revolution podcast. Head to factormeals.com ARP50 and use that code ARP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code ARP50 at factormeals.com ARP50 to get 50% off your first box, plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Hey, thanks for joining the American Revolution Podcast After Show, part of the Airwave Media Network. Thanks to my Patreon supporters in the Alexander Hamilton Club, George Davis, Mike Hager, John Celentano, and Michael Mulhern, and to Robert Morris Circle supporters, Patrick LeBeau, Kurt Avard, and Anthony McGinnis. Thanks also to Shane Herzfeld and Austin Foster, who began support on Patreon last month at the Standard Bearer level. I sent out my monthly flag magnets earlier this week. Everyone who supports this podcast at the $10 level or higher receives a magnet representing a different Revolutionary War flag each month. My thanks also to Chris Kane for a one-time gift via Venmo. For those of you who want to support the podcast financially, but don't want to be tied down to a Patreon subscription, I gratefully accept gifts via PayPal and Venmo, with links on my blog and website. Now, this week's episode marks the end of Benedict Arnold's life in America. He settled in London after this. Now, after the war, he did return to Canada for a few years, but even after that, he eventually moved back to London, where he died in 1801. Arnold would have liked to return to America. In 1782, 
when General Guy Carleton returned to America to replace General Clinton, Arnold wanted to sail with him. Arnold wanted to go back and continue the fight. Even after Yorktown, he was not ready to give up. But the ministry denied his request and kept him in England. He tried to get the government to give him a privateer ship so that he could resume the fight that way, but was also denied for that. Even when Britain returned to war with France in the 1790s, Arnold remained on inactive duty at half pay. He made several proposals, including leading a fleet to capture much of Latin America, and another to lead a fleet that would protect Britain from an invasion by France, but his efforts were largely ignored. Arnold's last campaign in America, against New London, would only worsen the traitor's already despicable reputation. The raid on Connecticut, where he pillaged his former friends and neighbors, was bad enough, but the Fort Griswold massacre was particularly galling. Now, it was a medieval practice to give any walled towns an opportunity to surrender to an attacking army, and if they did not, the attackers would ravage and destroy the town once they entered. It was a way to encourage towns to surrender without a bloody fight. And that seems to be similar to what happened at Fort Griswold. Even so, this was seen as a barbarous act. What might have been acceptable in the medieval era was not appropriate in the 18th century. To this day, the town of London burns an effigy of Benedict Arnold on the anniversary of this raid. My book recommendation is The Man in the Mirror, A Life of Benedict Arnold by Claire Brandt. This is one of the few books about Arnold that goes beyond his service in the Continental Army and his treason and actually talks about his British service and post-war life. The book's a little under 300 pages, not counting notes and index, and I think it does a pretty good job. It was published in 1994. The author, Brandt, was from upstate New York, and sadly she passed away in 2021. The book is available for sale. There's also a borrow-only copy on archive.org, so if you want to get a more rounded view of Arnold's life, you may want to read The Man in the Mirror, A Life of Benedict Arnold. My online recommendation is an older book called The Battle of Groton Heights, a collection of narratives, official reports, records, etc., of the storming of Fort Griswold and the burning of New London by British troops under the command of Brigadier General Benedict Arnold on the 6th of September, 1781, by William Wallace Harris. Now, this book is particularly interesting because it contains many reprints of primary sources. It includes reports and narratives of those who were actually there. You can read General Arnold's official report, as well as the narratives of massacre survivors. I should mention Groton Heights is another name for what happened to combine the battle at Fort Griswold and the burning of New London. This book was published in 1870, just in time for the battle's centennial. It's available as a free online to read or download on archive.org. As always, I've included direct links to the book, The Battle of Groton Heights, on my blog and website. My question today isn't really a question. It's the second one-star review that I have received on Apple for this podcast. Now, I know I shouldn't pay attention to reviews, and everyone gets bad reviews once in a while. We should really just ignore them, but I'm going to violate that rule and comment here. I'll also mention the first one-star review I ever received that left any comment was just complaining that I had added advertising. 
fair criticism, but I'm not sure why advertising has anything to do with the content of the podcast. The second one-star review was more critical on substance. Someone using the screen name of Baby Baguette commented as follows, stating that indentured servants had a harder time than slaves was a weird choice that I'm not sure is rooted in any particular fact, stating that slavery was a life sentence as property to slaves and their children while minimizing their struggles is tone deaf and calling them blacks is loaded with derogatory undertones. Now, this criticism, which was posted a few months ago, appears to reference Episode 2, American Background, which was published way back in 2017. That introductory episode was simply meant to give an overview of the American colonies as they existed in the time leading up to the American Revolution. The review criticizes something I said in a brief section about indentured servants. And here's a quote of what I said. Many historians minimize the harshness of indentured servitude when compared to slavery. Slavery was a life sentence for you and your children. Indentured servitude was only temporary. But during that time of service, indentured servitude was as hard and often harder than being a slave. It was not simply working off a debt like paying off a student loan is today. Indentured servants were bound to their master and obligated to do whatever work was demanded of them. Indentured servants were often used for more dangerous work than slaves. Work might involve laboring in mines or clearing mosquito-infested swamps. An indentured servant's death was less of an investment loss to the owner than that of a slave. Servants could not leave their employer before their term was up, regardless of conditions. A master could sell their contract to someone else. Servants could not marry without their master's permission. And they could be whipped for disobedience or other infractions. Now, the reviewer states that he's not sure that my statement about indentured servants was rooted in any particular fact. I'm here to say I stand by that statement, and I believe it is rooted in fact. Of course, everyone's experience could be different. Some indentured servants had more difficult experiences than others. Some slaves had more difficult experiences than others. What I was trying to emphasize in that quote was that indentured servants were also treated like slaves during the term of their indenture and that in many cases they were given more life-threatening work since the master would not lose as much if an indentured servant died. There were many academic sources that make this same point. I relied largely on the work of Professor David Gallinson from the University of Chicago. What I was really trying to do there was counter the idea that indentured servitude was similar to an apprenticeship, or really just some simple short period where you owed labor but still had the rights of a free person. You did not. I admittedly did not talk in detail about how bad slavery was. And I noted that later in that same episode. I said, quote, Because the horrors and details of slavery are covered much better and in much more detail elsewhere, I will not get into a detailed discussion here. And in fact, there are much better and well-known books and articles about the horrors of slavery. That simply was not the point of that episode. It doesn't mean that I didn't think slavery was horrific. Finally, the review states that my use of the term blacks has derogatory overtones. All I can say to that is that it was not my intent to be derogatory. My experience has been that the appropriate terms that we should use for lots of different groups or people seem to change every few years. 
At times, one term is considered respectful and is later believed to be derogatory. I suspect that Baby Baguette will never hear this response since this person never got past episode two. That said, I thought it appropriate to address the criticism and beg the indulgence of my listeners on making this point. Thanks for listening. If you have a question you'd like me to answer, please reach out to me either via email or on Twitter, Facebook, Quora, or Reddit. No need to leave a one-star view to get my attention. Well, that's all for this week. I hope you will join me again next week for another American Revolution podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts.